Hi friends, and welcome back to Unearthing, our chats with organizers, leaders, and teachers about the powerful tools that they create for justice. I'm Nico Chen, founder of Up With Community. We help people learn better together. Today, we're talking with Alexandra Broski about her new book, Sexual Justice. Sexual justice takes us into the values and principles that can guide how institutions handle allegations of wrongdoing by their members. How do we address accusations of sexual harm that the accused deny? Where is dignity for all in the process without a lack of accountability and justice? Alexandra is a civil rights lawyer and founder of Know Your Nine, an organization devoted to ending gender violence in schools. Thanks for being with us here today, Alexandra. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, our podcast is made possible by our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. You can help us create more content at upwithcommunity.org forward slash support. Alexandra, let's get into it. Um, I very much enjoyed reading this book. When I found out you had written a book, I instantly ordered it the same day on Amazon because I said, if Alexandra has something to say, I want to read it. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed seeing how you were connecting the dots to really try to get us to look differently at something that we feel like we've seen and unfortunately seen so much of in our society today. So I wanted to kick us off by getting a little bit into the real um, arguments and ideas that you're laying out in the book. You know, one of the things that you, you invite us to think about is many of us don't think about sexual violence as a civil rights issue. We often think about it as a legal issue or a criminal proceeding. We only think about it in the case of a criminal court, much like Harvey Weinstein, a case that we, you cite in your opening. Can you tell us more about the case for addressing sexual violence and harassment as a civil rights issue? Absolutely. You know, when I'm talking about sexual harms as a civil rights issue, I'm really thinking about both viewing the impact of what happens differently and then thinking about different remedies. So I think that so many of us are used to thinking that what is bad about a sexual assault is the moment that the assault happens and then the obvious remedy is to lock up the person who did it. And, you know, I, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that the, the harm of sexual assault in the moment isn't serious, but what I think that that can overlook is the way that various sexual harms can affect survivors going forward and how they can engage in their communities. And, you know, the example that, you know, I think for me, it was just so clarifying is that it's so hard for a young person to you know, learn how to do long division in a math class that they share with someone who sexually assaulted them over the weekend um, or who is sexually harassing them in class. And we see the same thing in the workplace. You know, how are you supposed to come to your workplace or come to your organizing circle if someone who has hurt you really seriously is there too and you feel unsafe in that situation? And uh, that has ramifications for individuals who then can't leave, you know, lead the full lives that they wanted to. And it also has ramifications for systemic inequality. And this is where I think the civil rights hook is clearest, where what does it mean when whole classes of people who are particularly vulnerable to this kind of sexual harassment uh, are excluded from our workplaces, from our media, from, um, you know, art production, from politics? Uh, that means that women, that queer people, that people of color are being left out of these spaces. And, um, you know, I, that, that also then means that we need to think differently about the remedies because, you know, I want to be clear that people are different from one another. 
It means that survivors are different from one another. Survivors want different things. And I'm not trying to say what survivors should want or shouldn't want. But I think that a lot of people just assume that everyone who's been sexually harmed wants to see the person who did it to them or the people who did it to them in prison. And that's definitely true for some people. But what a lot of people need most is some time off from work so that they can just take a beat. They need a shift change so that they don't have to be in a small contained environment with the person who's harassing them. They need tutoring because they didn't, you know, they, they were distracted during that long division segment and so are behind in math class. And those are the kind of remedies that institutions are really uniquely positioned to provide, that communities that understand their context that are you know, close to the survivor can provide in a way that, frankly, the court system and particularly the, the criminal legal system are just uh, really ill-equipped for. Mm. Alexandra, I got to take a beat because even just that story, again, brings up how personal it was reading your book, you know, um, I was that kid in the class hmm. and I look back on that time and I think no adults in, in my life kind of knew how to even conceptualize what you're talking about. And, and there's such a humanity in the process recommendations that you're inviting us to think about. And I was thinking a lot about Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality, right? You're really inviting us to think about how these systems interact and connect from the point of this one moment in time, right? You're inviting us to look at this moment of time as not happening once and then being done, but as happening throughout space and time and network and system. And that invitation, even for someone who works on justice, when I feel it so personally, it's tough. I'm like, okay, Alexandra, I got to breathe through that. You're asking me to think through things that are, that feel this weight for me, right? One of the pieces that I wanted to ask you is like, how do you handle as you sit with people that are going through that same pr emotional process that I am as you're talking through this stuff? Yeah, I mean, that is, um, that is a good question that I hope to someday have the answer to. <laughs> I, guess what, I guess what I will say is that, um, and you know, I should say, I'm both, you know, sorry and glad to hear that that resonated. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm trying to think how to put this. I feel like, my life, like so many people's lives, is filled with people for whom uh, this stuff is personal, that I feel like there was sort of a moment, probably sometime when I was organizing around these issues in college, when I started to feel like, um, especially when I'm talking to women or queer or trans people, like, I'm sort of working for an assumption that it's probably personal in some ways, um, and maybe, you know, not in ways that have been life-defining for someone, but I don't know a woman who hasn't been catcalled, hasn't been sexually harassed in some form. Um, and I think that almost realizing how day-to-day -day these harms are means that we're all in community together with it. I mean, I, I wish that that were not true, but I guess that's at least a little, a little bit of a, a silver lining. Mm. And I guess I should also say that one thing that's just been important for me as an organizer and a writer is to, particularly working with young people, um, is to recognize that sometimes people, I don't think this is not what's happening here, but that sometimes people respond to an argument or respond to a strategy in a way that is really personal for them in a moment that is not going to respond to my lawyerly logical counter argument. So there are actually some arguments in the book that I, I have seen some feminists and survivors respond to with 
hurt. And that's really, that's difficult for me. But I also know that saying, well, I addressed your argument at page, you know, blah, 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 is not the thing that's going to work there. That's, that's not what's happening. That's not the, the sort of plane that we're working on. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's what I appreciate that you do bring a personal element into the book and weave like people's stories and your own story in throughout um, so that it isn't as dry of an approach to, to the conversation. I want to get back to asking you about what those things are yeah. that <laughs> talk to you about. Um, but let's take a beat to understand a little bit more about what the ideas are in the book before we talk about that. So not everyone is familiar with the difference between a criminal court case and a civil court case. Could you just tell us really quickly what that difference is? Yes, absolutely. So um, what you have seen on Law and Order is a criminal court. That's when the state prosecutes a person or people or corporation. And the usually the goal of that prosecution is to put that person in prison. And um, you know, one thing that's important to note there is that the, the victim of whatever harm is at issue isn't a part of that proceeding. They are essentially a special witness to it, but the prosecution is brought on the state's behalf, not on the survivor's behalf. Um, in a civil proceeding, um, that's uh, where uh, sort of a, a private individual can bring a lawsuit against someone who's hurt them. And the goal there is usually either money damages. So, you know, if the, if the lawsuit succeeds, the other person writes a check, uh, or it's the court telling the, the defendant to do something. So um, an example of this might be that if some incarcerated people sue a prison for bad conditions, the court might say, you need to correct your overcrowding problem um, and take these steps and we're going to have someone oversee this and all of that. So, you know, some of the key differences are, again, is the harmed person part of the equation? Criminal case, no. Civil case, yes. What are the remedies available? You know, incarceration or money damages, policy change. Um, and there are also uh, different standards of proof. So it's often easier for someone to prove their case in a civil court because uh, less is required to convince a jury. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So helpful. So one of the things that I really appreciated in the argument is you, you're saying, okay, there is this legal proceeding that happens. That's still important. And you and I, I experienced you trying to expand my imagination for all of the other ways that we can care for survivors, respond to community and, and help set up systems so that less harassment and violence happens. Part of that is, is using civil courts. And part of that is expanding our understanding of what institutional responses can be overall, right? Um, so that we can even think about things outside of court. And, and what I really love about that is you're naming institutions and you're holding them accountable for their role in the interactions people have within them. Can you say a little bit more about some of the options you're putting on the table for what institutions can do to uh, prevent, respond to sexual violence and harassment? Sure. So, you know, I talk mostly in the book about schools and workplaces, but because that's where we have sort of the most stories, the most uh, examples from law and media and all of that. But I also talk about um, uh, political groups like DSA developing an anti-harassment policy. I talk about my you brother's- what DSA is? Sorry, yes, Democratic Socialists of America. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I talk about my brother's sci-fi group, 
um, which had to come up with a policy to deal with sexual harm between members. And, you know, I, I would put the, um, the sort of types of things institutions can do into two main buckets. So one is that there are a lot of really easy, light touch uh, services and supports that institutions can provide that really don't require finding out what happened, you know, don't require probing the truth of the allegation. So if someone's, you know, if, if a worker comes in and says, hey, like, can you change my desk? Just like the person that I'm next to keeps making jokes that make me uncomfortable and I just sort of like, don't want to see them all day. A, a workplace doesn't really have to, you know, do a three month long investigation to figure out whether that's appropriate or not. Just do it. If someone says I need a little extra PTO to handle this, just do it. Um, but there are also some kinds of interventions and remedies that start to impinge on um, the, the freedom, the access, the rights of the person who's accused of the sexual harm. And so really do require some kind of digging into what happened here. So, and it, you know, what I would say there is if someone says, I just cannot be in this organizing space with this person who sexually assaulted me, then the group, uh, I, you know, I think before asking they can ask the person to voluntarily leave the person who's been accused. But if the accused says, I didn't do this, I don't want to leave. I don't know what you're talking about. This is unfair to me. The, the group is going to have to get some sense of what happened to make a decision about what remedies are appropriate going forward. Uh, and I talk about uh, some ways that organizations can collect information and give everyone a chance to be heard and feel like they are real humans who are being considered in this process before ultimately make a decision. And you know, a thing that I you know, hammer on is that this does not have to look like a law enforcement investigation. You do not need to have an adversarial hearing that looks like a criminal trial. And that's just not realistic. I mean, you think about the resources that are available to my brother's sci-fi club, they are not gonna be able to do that, but that doesn't mean that they have no responsibility to their members, either those who have been harmed or those who have been accused of doing things that they deny. Mm. Mm, mm. I love that. And, and you've got a whole piece of the book about how do we have dignity and respect for everyone, particularly when we are in that situation where the accused denies. And I want to talk about that a little bit more. You talk personally about re wrestling with the concept of empathy, uh, which is this concept of um, empathy for the accused that maybe goes too far um, and then starts to uh, obfuscate justice and truth and transparency and accountability. Um, and you, you talk about how do we hit that balance of dignity and accountability. And you talk a, a lot about due process, which, you know, is something a lot of us learn in like sixth grade. And then they're like, oh, that's a thing. You know <laughs> what I mean? And so can you share a little bit about the insights you, you hope that people take away from the book around how to have process with dignity? Yes, and I will say this was really one of the two hardest parts of this book for me to write because I was so aware of the fact that I was going to be talking to different audiences where I feel like when, you know, I, it was really important for me to say to fellow feminists and advocates for survivors that uh, the values of due process aren't a threat to us. It's not selling out survivors to say that people accused of these harms deserve to be heard and to be treated fairly and to have us recognize their humanity, both because they are people, they, even if they're people who did bad things, they are people. And also because so often survivors themselves end up 
accused, where um, there are many stories, both um, from within institutions and in the larger criminal legal system, where survivors end up being accused of harms by the person who's abusing them as a form of retaliation. And so in that context, due process is very directly survivor justice. Uh, but I also knew that reading this were going to be people who maybe needed to turn down the empathy a little bit. And I didn't want to risk telling them, you are absolutely right to be first and foremost concerned when especially a man is accused of sexual harm, that protecting him has to be our first instinct. Uh, and so, I, it, you know, it was tough for me to try to thread that needle. Um, but, you know, it was helpful for me to have a starting place to think about what dignity looks like in this context. And I certainly think that the law is not the end all be all, that sometimes the law gets it wrong, that sometimes legal principles are inappropriate in other contexts, but that some smart people have been thinking for a number of centuries now about what fairness means. You know, how, you know what do people both, um, what is effective and also what makes people feel heard. So I think actually an interesting example of this, at least to me, is that there's been, uh, you know, in the American legal system, the uh, you know cross examination is really critical. That when you people who are accused, either a criminal uh, court or in a civil proceeding, have the opportunity to have their lawyer directly question the person who's accused them. And you know, there's all this, all of these cases saying that's the most important truth-seeking mechanism. And it turns out, if you look at evidence, it's actually not that effective because often what judges or other decision makers take as evidence of lying, like someone fumbling over their words or sweating, is actually just evidence that they're really stressed out about being cross-examined. But there is still a, a core principle there, which is that people want the chance to put forward their side of the story and then to press on the story that the other person presents in some way. And there are recently courts and institutions have been experimenting with, um, methods that allow people to feel heard, allow people to have that pressing opportunity, but in a way that reduces the opportunity for re-traumatization that uh, act and can actually be more truth-seeking as a result. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking about how that's humanizing the process. And one of the pieces that you also call us into is looking at misogyny within our systems, right? And um, you spend a good amount of time talking about the misogyny of proceedings on sexual harm um, and how we handle that. You know, what are, in a, you know, in addition to what you just laid out, how would you invite institutions and leaders of institutions to start to get curious and examine more closely their own misogyny, even before they are, find themselves in a proceeding, right? Yeah, I mean, for me, the if if I if people take away anything from this book, what I would really love, you know, especially people involved in some kind of institutional design, I would love for them to ask: Are we treating these harms differently than we treat other people? Uh, the other ways that people hurt each other, and if so, why? Because one of the things that you know I've been wrestling with for years now is why are these conversations about fairness and due process so uniquely fraught when we're talking about sexual harms. You know, there have been how many op-eds about how, uh, you know, Me Too is a travesty of due process, that men are getting fired, uh, you know, at a mere allegation, all of that, when employers and organizations and schools are 
constantly in the business of dealing with people hurting each other in ways that are sexual and non-sexual. Um, but the non-sexual harms don't seem to give us the same, the same, the heebie-jeebies in the same way when it comes to process. And I think that, you know, looking historically at how courts have handled sexual assault allegations, I think the answer really is that we think that people who say that they've been sexually harmed, who are uh, largely, though not, you know, the, not always women, we think that those people are lying. We think that those people are uniquely suspect. We think that these allegations are particularly likely to be false. And we think that people accused of these harms need special protections that wouldn't be there if they were accused of punching someone in the face or harassing them on a different identity. And what that, I should say, to be clear, that's not true, empirically, uh, false allegations. Just, just want to be clear, I think we're probably all, all on the same page here, but false allegations of sexual assault are, um, those rates are both very low and are in line with false allegations for other kinds of serious harms, um, you know, like burglary, and there's not a bunch of, it's not a men's rights movement about, or I shouldn't say a men's rights movement, there's not a movement of people concerned about false allegations of burglary. Uh, and, um, and so what often ends up happening is that even well-meaning institutions will create procedures around sexual harassment that end up really putting survivors through the ringer in a way that they wouldn't deem necessary for other kinds of harms. Um, and so that doesn't mean, and I want to be really clear about this, that doesn't mean that sexual harms aren't special in some ways. I think that their impact um, is, you know, the, the systemic impact of sexual assault, I think, is greater than the systemic impact of people punching their coworkers in the face. But that doesn't mean that we need to have these different special and particularly onerous procedures for vetting those claims. Mm, mm, mm. I think sometimes people tell themselves, well, we have that to protect people. And, you know, if, if an institutional leader said, but yeah, but if we just do something less structured and with less layers, are we protecting everyone? What would you say to that leader? No, I would have two, two thoughts. One is, if you think that these procedures are necessary to protect people from false allegations, then you should use them for all harms then mm -hmm. there's no reason to uniquely use it for sexual harassment. Um, and, you know, there's tons of just workplace bullying in general. Um, there's uh, lots of misconduct that happens between employees. And if you, if the, your red alarm isn't going off in the same way for those accusations, something's up. Um, and I'd also say that I, I think it's important for institutions to think about the ways in which they can promote fairness, that they can, uh, promote the values of due process in ways that take the burden onto themselves rather than putting it onto the survivor. So um, an example I might give is, I think it's a great idea, probably for all kinds of uh, employee misconduct, for uh, workplaces to say, everyone gets an advisor here. You know, everyone in, who is lodging an allegation, who is the subject of an allegation, is going to get someone in you know, management or senior ranks that they trust who can kind of be their buddy through the system and help them understand what's going on and be a sounding board. And that might require the organization to invest in personnel resources and all of that. Um, but that's that's great for everybody. Um, I, I think it's wise for organizations to invest in what might be time consuming for management uh, ways of uh, hearing from the parties, giving them the opportunity to see each other's evidence, all of that. What I don't think is smart is to say, 
uh, instead we're going to put the burden on the victim by, let's say, increasing the, uh, the, the amount of evidence that's required by using a higher standard of evidence. Um, because that's really the organization outsourcing, you know, its obligations to, for fairness, um, for, you know, getting to the truth onto someone who says that they've just been harmed in a very serious way. Yeah. 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 And what I appreciate in your discussion about how we often view, um, survivors and victims as lying, uh, there's such, again, an intersectional piece there to how do they identify in their sexual orientation? How do they identify in their race? And how do these biases intersect in a structural and systemic way? Um, and I really appreciate how you're bringing that together, right? And, and understanding the multiple identities that people have as they enter into these processes. You know, I'm curious about some of the feedback you've heard from survivors or other communities that you kind of align yourself with as, as an ally, as a partner. Um, what are some of those things that they've come to say that you've, you know, been wrestling with in having a conversation around the book? Sure. So, I mean, I guess I should start by saying everyone who's ever read the book loves it. And so everyone listening to this should buy it immediately. That's the most <laughs> important takeaway. Just putting it out there. Um, Get it, Alexandra. Okay. <laughs> trying to lean in here. Um, you know, I, I think that the thing that I've gotten the most pushback from, from survivor advocates, from fe feminists is uh, this, this, critique of exceptionalism. So that's the, the term that I borrow from previous scholars about, uh, you know, this ways, the way in which we set up um, unique uh, procedures for sexual harassment alone, the way that we treat sexual harms differently than other kinds of harms uh, in the way that we, we vet the, the allegations. And what I've heard from advocates um, and uh, had, had heard before, uh, publishing the book from some advocates and discuss this a little bit in there was, well, again, sexual harms are different. They are experienced more intimately by many people. They can have a larger impact on their lives and on equality writ large than other kinds of harms. So shouldn't we treat these allegations differently? Wouldn't it make sense, for example, to have uniquely um, non-adversarial procedures for these kinds of harassment? So what they're thinking is, no, to be clear, you know, the historical trend is treating these allegations with unique suspicion. And what the advocates are saying is, shouldn't we treat these allegations with unique tenderness? And I really do understand that. And I, I think that I have sort of two, two responses. One is, if you've figured out good ways to handle allegations like these, which are um, particularly sensitive uh, and um, can, there's a unique risk of re-traumatization in, in the investigation, then why don't, you know, let's share those great insights in dealing with all kinds of other misconduct. So if someone says that they have been racially harassed by one of their colleagues, let's offer them all the great policies that we've developed for sexual harassment. Um, you know, if someone, and, you know, we can take it even out of uh, sort of the you know, I think that that's clearest to me for other kinds of civil rights harms, other kinds of equality harms. But I also just think it's true that if a kid is being bullied for, you know, their weight, which is not under the law protected characteristic, that can still be so devastating for them. Let's let them benefit from these these great new policies we've developed. Let's 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 share that. 
the other thought I have, which I get is ultimately just a, a, a political strategic call is I really fear that whenever we single out these kind of out al- these sexual allegations for unique treatment, even if it's uniquely good treatment, that that invites backlash. That is ultimately going to return us to the historical norm of treating these allegations particularly poorly. And um, that is, you know, for me, really informed by my experience working on sexual harms in schools, where there a lot of schools uh, during the Obama era adopted new procedures for sexual harms. They had bad procedures before, bad policies. They picked up new, they developed new ones that sometimes had real flaws. And then when the right came in, when Trump and Betsy DeVos and this men's rights backlash came in to criticize those procedures, they were viewing them in a vacuum, right? They weren't talking about how does the school handle student discipline in general. They were talking just about how the school handles sexual assault. And that meant that when the right, when Betsy DeVos redeveloped new procedures, new rules for schools to use, they were uh, uniquely onerous. They didn't look like student discipline in any other context, where I really think that if you had asked um, even the right, what should student discipline look like in general, and you weren't just talking about this particular kind of harm that they are so suspicious of, that they the, the uh, solutions they came up with wouldn't have been nearly as bad. Mm. 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 Yeah. You know, you've you've made a few mentions of how you'd like to see this book impact people. You know, I wonder if if to revisit it, um, for you, how would you ultimately love to see an institutional leader or a community taking this book and putting it into practice? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, I would love for organizations to take this as an invitation to look at how they address harms between their members in general, uh, thinking about both what kinds of remedies they can offer people, regardless of whether there's any kind of investigation, regardless of whether the allegation is you know, investigated and proved up and to think creatively there. And I think that those are solutions that are gonna be so community specific because it's gonna be about how, you know, what is the physical uh, layout of the way that you, of where you spend time together? Um, you know, what are the modes of, how, how do you hold meetings? How many people are in those meetings? You know, are there ways to hold meetings differently so that people don't have to spend time together if they're uncomfortable together? You know, these are answers, these are questions that I can't answer for every organization. Let me, let me take that back. Um, the remedies that will be effective for survivors are going to really vary based on these nitty gritty details about how an organization works together. Um, and then I'd also like for those organizations to think about what procedures they use for harms in general between members, making sure that those procedures are uh, sufficient to, uh, you know, sufficiently sensitive to handle allegations of sexual harm without having a separate policy that is just for sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I want to transition to talking a little bit more about you in the process. Why take these ideas? Because I know you worked in this area for quite some time before writing this book. Why share these ideas in a book? 
Why was book the vehicle you, you turned to? Yeah, you know, I was really, I, I will be honest, I was hesitant to write a book. Uh, this is maybe going to sound mean spirited of me, but I feel like so many books can be a long article. And I just, you know, I was really worried about doing that myself. And I really, I, I don't think that that's the case here. I hope not. But um, I, I think where I really, where it came from was I realized that I wasn't going to be able to explain um, everything that was informing my my views, my vision in an op-ed. And I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with it like this where you're talking to someone and you're like, wait, we have such totally different visions of what even the words we're using mean that I need to like bring you back to my political development from age 12 onward in order to explain to you why I why I think the way that I think. And I felt for me, this was particularly acute. And I think sort of the moment of feeling like I just needed to write, needed to write a book came around the Kavanaugh hearings, where I felt like there was this public discourse around what, you know, what due process for sexual harms means, where I felt, I'm trying to think how to put this, it felt like there were like centuries of meaning to those terms that people were using in different ways, perhaps unknowingly. And I wanted to be able to get the at, at the root of why do we address sexual harms? What does it mean to do so fairly? What are the different what are the different good and bad influences that shape how we think about these questions? And that was not going to happen, you know, in an Atlantic article. Yeah. 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 And I appreciated that you do go into your political learning and your development as a leader um, to serve the points that you're making in the book. And it left me wanting more. And I was like, whoa, what was it like starting No, You're Nine? Like, especially at the age, in the context you were, you know, and, and it, without making you go into all of that, which probably is, is the other book you could write. <laughs> you know, I'm curious about, you work with a lot of young folks. You have worked with a lot of young folks. I think there are quite a few young people, young people of color, young women who are on the cusp of their own like learning breakthrough, political mm. breakthrough, or have made it and like are about to start there, know you're nine. And, you know, what are some of the insights from that experience that didn't make it into the book that you would want to be sharing more with other people who see you as a role model? Yeah, um, that is, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I feel like there are definitely lessons that I have brought for myself in thinking through how to work with young people. And I'm trying to think about sort of the flip side of that. One is that uh, I really wish this is gonna, you know, Know Your Nine had great partners in the work who were more established organizations who, you know, lent us bullhorns for protests and helped us come up with policy recommendations and all of that. But I wish that I had had more real mentors um, who could have sat with me in thinking through really tough questions about working with humans and particularly working with people who have, many of whom have recently gone through, been politicized by really traumatic experiences where their, their, their politics and their personal experience are so intertwined and so raw. Um, I think that there are lessons I could have learned about, um, feminist history in order to avoid remaking mistakes. And uh, 
I think that, you know, what I, the kind of lawyer I would like to be is someone who young people can come to and not feel like I am looking down on them, not feel like I'm, you know, advising them in some kind of hierarchical way, but can play a sounding board and give, give a little bit of context. And I don't think, and some of this is just like the arrogance of the 22 year old. I don't think I knew I needed that. Um, but I think I really would have, would have benefited from it. And I also think I felt a decent amount of distrust because people who I think there are some people, movement people who I think I could have learned a lot from who rather than reaching out to us would write nasty op-eds when they disagreed with us. And so now like my first thought, even when I see student organizers doing something I disagree with is, hey, is there a way to engage directly rather than, you know, just like, you know, going on a public attack? Um, this is all ending up sounding very bitter. I really don't mean it to be. I'm just trying to think, you know, it's, I guess it's sort of, you know, I'm thinking of the question of like, what do I wish I had known and had at the time? Um, I, uh, you know, I think another thing that I uh, am starting to see some public conversation about, but would um, love to see more of and more sort of direct recommendations around is that often young people's power can come from sharing their, their stories about, you know, what are the personal experiences that led them to be politicized in this way. They give them insight into what remedies are necessary, what, you know, what change we need to see in the world. But that can also be real. Uh, I think that that can be really difficult for anyone, but especially a young person who's just starting to develop a sense of who they are in the world. And if the first, if that's happening when they are being held out publicly only as someone who something bad has happened to, I think that that can become a, uh, can start to feel like a totalizing identity that uh, even as they're trying to become that and also that and also more. Um, and so I think about, you know, and I, you know, I, I think I luckily was shielded from a lot of this, but I think about the, some, some of the ways that when I was a student organizer, there were essentially like quote unquote celebrity survivors who were, you know, 20 year olds who had been raped recently and suddenly were public figures whose, you know, the details of their rape and whether they were telling the truth or not and how pretty they were and if they were pretty enough to be raped. And like all of this was just public discourse. And I would love to think about, I'm curious if people have ideas for how we can uh, facilitate young people and other people telling stories that they want to share that can be powerful, not shaming them out of doing that while making sure that they are as protected as possible when doing so. Mm. Mm. Letting that soak in. I appreciate that. And I appreciate feeling the, all the experiences that have led to those reflections too. You know, the, the question I wanted to end on was, I really loved the dedication of the book. Oh, oh, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, to, to, and I, I have it written down here, um, you know, to the women who have shaped your feminism, right? And I, just as a closing, I just wondered if there's a few that you could share with us or, or what they meant to you, if you don't want to name them personally, just however you'd like to kind of share some of that dedication and, and that reflection. Oh, of course. Oh, I love this question. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think that so much of my political development has happened through 
friendships with other feminists and um you know, certainly, and you know, and who who are my peers, and you know, I I want to be clear that's not to the exclusion of reading and learning from movement elders and all of that. But you know, I think about you know sitting in bed with my college roommate Kate uh, and us, uh, you know, learning about strategies that students had used decades before to address um, school sexual harassment and hashing that out ourselves and wondering if, you know, uh, if those were the kind of feminists we were gonna be. And um, I feel like through, you know, Dana Bolger, who I started Know Your Nine with, uh, sat next to me at my wedding. And I feel like we've now had this, I guess, almost decade long friendship that is, you know, started as, as um, work, but has been really joyful. Um, and we've sort of grown up together politically in law school, I had um, a couple of uh, similar friendships. And I, I guess to maybe, uh, it reminds me sort of a hopeful note, and I will be honest, I don't, I often, you know, th things are rough out there right now. Um, but so I don't often feel particularly hopeful, but I, I, you know, I feel lucky in that there has been so much joy in this work for me, um, so much laughter, so much celebration, um, even though it is, it is heavy stuff. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's sort of the only way that we're going to be able to, to keep doing it is if we, you know, allow ourselves some, some happiness, not just alongside the work, but really in it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to end on that note, just offering up gratitude to the communities that are shaping us um, and still, yeah, have and still are shaping us. Um, we are talking about tough stuff today and it has been a pleasure to sit with you. So thank you. Um, I appreciate this time. Where can people find you? Where can they connect with the book? Yes. Um, so uh, where am I? I think I'm probably most uh, on Twitter at AZ Brodsky. Um, and then the book, uh, there is a link in my Twitter bio to the book. And if you Google sexual justice Brodsky, uh, you will find it. It's available where books are sold. It's online. It's on, in all of the places. Um, and um, yeah, I really, uh, I really appreciate, Nico, your engagement with the book and um, everyone else for considering diving in. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Alexandra. And for more content like this, just go to upwithcommunity.org.